Listen. World is talking. World Talk Radio. Is Reconstruction the period of this American history least understood even today? We'll ask that question of our guest Elizabeth Leonard when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. country's great treasures, the unmistakable sound of a nice California Chardonnay. There's nothing like it. Well, except, of course, for the sound of nails pounding lumber, building new homes across America, or steaks sizzling on the grill. In fact, 40% of American products are shipped by freight railroads, from computers to produce. We even carry trucks. Really, chances are the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. 70% of new American cars, 40% of the grain harvest. More Americans depend on us than ever. Freight railroads contribute more than $31 billion a year to the U.S. economy. And since one freight train carries a load of up to 500 trucks, that means less fuel, less traffic. A better environment, a better tomorrow. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that'll encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers the night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next auction listen the world is talking world talk radio interested in advertising on any of our shows please click the advertise link on the home page or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Professor Elizabeth Leonard from Colby College about a number of Civil War-related topics. Just before we resume our conversation, I wanted to say a word about the theme music that was played as we go into the uh, between the first and second segment. I asked uh, on a recent show if anybody knew what that was. My guest was a, a Carolyn Texley, also a fan of old time music, was unable to help me. I can't remember which tune it was. But listener uh, David White took the time to write in and, and suggest that it is a tune called Granny Does Your Dog Bite, which was supposedly played by Fiddler in Hood's Texas Brigade uh, in the cornfield at Antietam uh, before he was killed. Uh, I've played the fiddle a little bit. I've never been shot at uh, like that, but Possibly that's just forbearance on the part of the listeners. The uh, 
that uh, yes, I think it sounds good. I am not sure that that's the tune. I, I don't want to argue with uh, Mr. White. He may well be right. The B part of the tune, the second part, appears in a lot of fiddle tunes, Icy Mountain and others. The A part, the first half, sounds a little bit like Cattle in the Cane, uh, a little bit like Old Bell Cow, but not exactly. There are many uh, possibilities, but as one old fiddler once told me, uh, all the tunes sound the same and the titles don't matter. So if uh, we'll leave it at that for now. Elizabeth, uh, returning to our conversation, we were talking in the first half about the role of women participating in the Civil War, and you mentioned the traditional number uh, was 400. Uh, is that right? Right. But now research shows it's possibly closer to 1,000. Right. And one thing that struck me when you mentioned that was the way those numbers get stuck in the historical consciousness in uh, uh, in Mark Neely's book, The Fate of Liberty, about civil liberties under Lincoln. He mentions the fact that almost any Civil War text you read will say there were 13,000 political arrests in the North during the war. Mm. And he spent uh, a good bit of time tracking down that number and where it came from. Uh, and just as you were able to find, it was Mary Livermore was the source of the 400 right. uh, women. He he never he, he had some various uh, theories where the 13,000 came from, but he again went back and counted the uh, provost marshal's reports and did things individually and came up with a, a much lower number for actual political arrests. Mm. But once 13,000 got printed, it just keeps getting printed. And even today, people still will cite that as the number of political arrests. And they'll still cite that number of 400 for women soldiers. And they'll still cite the number, a very common number for women Civil War nurses is 3,000. And that number also has become um, sort of the standard number, unless you actually read modern scholars whose work on Civil War nurses has shown us that it's many thousands more than that. But that's the number that was associated with one particular nurse authority named Dorothea Dix. That was the rough number of the nurses she introduced into the system, but women came into nursing by the thousands in official ways, and of course by many more thousands in unofficial ways throughout the war. So 3,000 is an absurdly low number, but it's with Dix's nurses that numbered that many, and so that's the number that got stuck in the historical memory. Wow. And, and it, it is just amazing how those numbers do. Right. Uh, well, people love numbers. It somehow makes something tangible or manageable in our in our minds to have something, you know, a handle on it. Yeah, so we can manipulate it, we can understand it, we can get around right. it right. much better. Right. Now, if we can change gears a bit, your most recent book is titled Lincoln's Avengers. Right. Uh, and it is the story of the, well, it, it's it's not quite what what the cover or the subtitle or anything I read about it says it's going to be. Uh, it, uh, I, I blithely assumed this would be about the trial of the conspirators, uh, uh, the, the people who killed Abraham Lincoln, uh, John Booth's conspirators, uh, Mary Surratt uh, and uh, Atzerat and Payne and the others. And that certainly features in there, but that's not really what the book is about. What, what or is it's the not book? all that. What, it's, it's not, not all that, that the book is about. No, right. no it's uh, about that and, and other things. And much more, much right. more. Um, right. How how would you summarize it? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I originally had thought that I would write about Mary Surratt because she was so interesting to me. This woman who owned this boarding house and where many of the plans were laid, and 
I found her story fascinating. But then I found, as I studied her and the characters who were also associated with the assassination, that their stories were also fascinating. And then I began to develop a timeline of events. For some reason, it occurred to me that some of the events that followed the assassination in connection with these conspirators, the way the trial went, the kinds of uh, responses that various government officials were having to events in pursuing these assassins, um, how that timeline went, seemed to have a very interesting parallel in the general timeline of Reconstruction itself. And I began to see how the stories of the assassins and the whole struggle to bring justice around the assassination, to bring these conspirators to justice, was very much linked to the larger context of Reconstruction. So, and, and what was happening during particularly the Johnson administration with regard to Reconstruction. So I would say it's, it's a study of the assassination conspiracy and the consequences that the chief conspirators experience as a result of their crime or the crime that they're convicted of. But it's also a study of the way the federal government splits over Reconstruction and splits over the uh, punishment due to the assassination conspirators at the same time, and that the two stories are really interwoven. I see, re I see the assassination not just as the end of the Civil War, which is the way it's oftentimes, sorry, I, I meant to say I, I see the assassination not just as the end of the Civil War, but really the beginning and a very crucial, dramatic beginning of Reconstruction and what happens in one story is very much linked to what's happening with the other one. That, that certainly is a it, it's a bright line in American history. Courses end in 1865. Books end in 1865. Uh, other books begin with Reconstruction. Right. And by, we don't like to tell those two stories together. <laughs> that, you know, that's really true. I I, I find uh, teaching a course that ends in 1865 gives you a story arc that ends uh, with a, a sense of hopefulness. There, there's been right. this horrible war, but Slavery has ended, and perhaps there's a moment to uh, to remedy the the 200 years, 250 years of bondage, and and create a new future. If you end the course another 10 or the book another 10 or 12 years later, you have to admit it didn't work out that way. Well, and I'd say if you end it even past about the 15th of April, you start having to tell the other story too, because it really, if you end with if you end actually on the 9th of April, you know. Leave surrender for, for at least for people in the north. This is a this is a happy day, you know. <laughs> things have things have come to a bright and happy end. But if you start going past that to the inauguration of Johnson, and the way he really immediately starts making concessions, and white Southerners who had been prepared to take their knocks if they had to, you know, unwillingly, but but nevertheless prepared. Uh, immediately in the summer of 1865, even begin asking for pardons, uh, squaring their shoulders, and preparing to win in the political realm what they couldn't win in in the realm of battle. And by December, you have you know the South believing it's been reconstructed, and Johnson saying everybody should be coming back, and um, and the battle has engaged 
on, uh, in politics that was, you know, supposedly brought to an end. So it's a very different story, and it happens quite quickly. Now, the, the terms of that first Reconstruction, the presidential Reconstruction, uh, which, as you say, Johnson and many white Southerners believe is, is complete and a done deal by December 65, uh, those terms completely exclude the former slaves from any participation in government of the South. Right, and, and in fact, all across the South in the fall of 1865, black codes are being written to reinstitute the kinds of restrictions on the freed people that the 13th Amendment is supposed to have liberated them from. So, so Not only can they not vote, but they can't travel without a pass. Exactly. They exactly. can't quit their job without their employer's permission. Exactly. And, and work contracts are being established that are very harsh, very punitive. You know, there's, there's virtually no protection for the for the freed people. So it's, it's uh, essentially a, you know, going, a turning back of the clock as much as possible without... And, and, and Johnson is preparing to you know, tell white Southerners not to worry about these amendments, the 13th, and then later he'll say also the 14th. He encourages them not to support it, and so he's no friend of the freed people. No. Now, the, the reason, of course, that, that Reconstruction doesn't end there is that when the Southern reconstructed state governments send their representatives to Washington after the November elections of 1865, they send back uh, a lot of Confederates. Right. And the Congress does a double take and says, I thought we'd just beat you guys. Right. What and are you doing them here? Away. <laughs> turns them away. And turns them away. Says, right. We won the war. You're not going to govern us. We right. should govern you. And then, and as you say, then the political battle is joined. Now, in, in this is not news to you or me or anyone who's read, say, Eric Foner's work on Reconstruction in the last decade. Right. But the great majority of American people still, if they think about Reconstruction at all, recall it as the, the, that horrible time when the evil carpetbaggers and scallywags uh, looted and maimed the South and oppressed it. And uh, if only Lincoln had lived, we wouldn't have had to go through all that. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of people also believe that the radical Republicans, you know, the people who fought back against Johnson and said, no, no, we have to make this war mean something, they're not seen in a very favorable light. And 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 Johnson is seen by many people as someone who simply was trying to, as he said himself, carry the mantle of Abraham Lincoln and make a peace and make make... Uh, a, a post-war arrangement that was not punitive, but that was forgiving and welcoming and so on, because after all, hadn't Lincoln said, let us have, you know, malice toward none, right? Uh, so I think that Johnson's own construction of himself has been very successful, and the radical Republicans have come to seem like crazy, vengeful people, which in fact some of them were. But I think that they became crazier and more vengeful the more they felt that the farm was being given away again and the victory, you know, of the After Union. After such cost. At, at such cost. And, uh, and, uh, and the whole issue of the freed people and what's going to happen to them, it seems like, you know, it's all going to come to nothing. And I think they become frantic. And I, certainly some key players, I think, become quite frantic. Now, the you often hear the the cliche that winners write the history, but 
here we have just the opposite. Uh, right. Because right. It, it is the losing version that, that is dominant. Right. It's one, I think, one of the very few cases, at least in American history, where thanks to the um, persistence of lost cause thinking, you could really say the successful propagation of that idea and then its persistence over the last 140-some years of lost cause thinking, you really have a case where the losers have, have written the history, and, and uh, it's been very enduring, that version of history. Do you see that among your students? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I'm shocked sometimes, really, and I'm shocked by students. I, I, I often think of a student I had a number of years ago, a student from Maine, otherwise a reasonably bright young man who, after we'd read a book on um, it was James McPherson's The Negro's Civil War, written back in the 1960s, and a wonderful, wonderful, very um, uh, early book, I think, on African-American contribution, a wonderful book. We'd read that, and after we read it, he took me aside after class and said, um, now, Professor Leonard, do you assign books like this because you think that you need to be politically correct, or do you assign them because you really think blacks are important in the story of the Civil War? And he was asking me the question quite seriously. Hmm. And and I was stunned. And I said, well, I, I include them because I think you can't tell the Civil War story without talking about slavery and African Americans and their contributions to the Army and so on and so on and so on. But he just felt that, you know, it really is, this is a story about, you know, white soldiers on the battlefield and you know, so I definitely okay. still see it. It, it uh, you know, Colby College, of course, is, is in Maine, and uh, right. I, I here in Greenville, North Carolina, that doesn't come as too much of a surprise when when one encounters that kind of thinking. But uh, but there doesn't seem to be any regional limit to it. Uh, no, from, there's from not because Northerners have bought the story too. We have absolutely bought, and it's a it's certainly a, you know a, there are many appealing aspects to that kind of version of the war. And reconstruction, and that everything you know has worked out for the best, and it was really just about valiant men, you know, expressing their courage and their love of country, even if they were on different sides, you know, and and reconciliation uh, occurred. And so long as we leave out a few crucial details, you know, it can be made into a much happier story than the grisly story we we really should be exploring, particularly because of its repercussions to the present. I would say. The whole, I mean, I, I, one of the reasons Andrew Johnson stands as, as really a, a villain in Lincoln's Avengers is because from a, from a perspective of someone who grew up, you know, not only in the Vietnam era, but through civil rights and, and uh, you know, the late 20th century, I, I look back at him and I think he squandered a wonderful opportunity to set race relations in America on a new path. And and he stood squarely in that path and said, no, we're not going in that direction if I can help it. And others tried to fight him on that, but, you know. Well, one of those who, who did try to fight him, uh, the central character in your story, is uh, the otherwise little-known Joseph Holt. Right. And I want to talk about him. We're going to take another break, but we'll come back and talk about Joe Holt and others with our guest today, Elizabeth Leonard, on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 